Welcome to episode 167 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. And today I'm going to be talking to Michael Liebrick, who is a senior contributor to Bloomberg NEF, about an article that he wrote last December called The Unbearable Lightness of Hydrogen. And Michael has become a bit of a superstar in my world for with the hydrogen critics, of which there are, are quite more than I thought there were going to be. And they've got some pretty good arguments. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the argument against hydrogen. So welcome to the interview, Michael. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, you're joining us. Are you joining us from London? That's right. Yeah, I'm here in the sort of office space that I use uh, in my house in uh, Notting Hill Gate. Excellent. And how did you now your background is as an engineer. So give us a little bit of your background and how you came to be a contributor to uh, Bloomberg NEF. So now, the, how many hours do we have? I'll give you the short version. Um, so I did indeed start as an engineer. I'm a Cambridge engineer. My big thing was thermodynamics. I even got a university prize. But I never, at that point, I never worked as an engineer. I actually went into business. I was on the side. I was doing an awful lot of skiing, and it was kind of hard to combine. So I became a consultant. I went to business school. I worked for the dreaded McKinsey doing all sorts of things, uh, not energy related, but to do with supply chains, to do with technology. Um, and then I did an awful lot of stuff around the kind of uh, telecoms boom bust cycle around the dot com. But a lot of that was a real education in the use of um, digitization, uh, also an incredibly powerful driver here. Uh, but it left me high and dry. 2003, I started New Energy Finance, an information provider on all things related to, at the time, actually renewables, but then it expanded. It became smart meters, digitization, electric vehicles. We covered fracking, nuclear, the, the whole range. And I sold that to Bloomberg in 2009. And I ran it for a few years, but I am still, you know, whatever that is, 12, 13 years after, since I sold it, I'm still a uh, contributor. I'm a, I'm a senior contributor, and I get to write these columns, like the one you mentioned, The Unbearable Likeness of Hydrogen. Well, isn't that interesting? I, I didn't know that you were the founder of New Energy Financing. Good good on you for cashing out and uh, and, and selling to Bloomberg. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of BNEF's uh, work as a rule. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the hype around hydrogen. Have we? Is this a case of a Gartner's hype cycle? You know, and maybe we're at the... I uh, you know, it, so there's a, for those who, who maybe aren't familiar with this, there's a big curve, big sharp curve where the hype goes off the charts. And then eventually at some point reality sets in and, and people become disillusioned. But then eventually the technology begins to deliver, you know, gets far enough up the S curve and uh, the adoption F S curve and it becomes economic and it begins to compete in the marketplace. And then the curve, the hype curve comes back up as people become more realistic about it. Is that what's going on here? So I think the, the issue with the hype curve when it's applied to hydrogen is that it's very kind of, I mean, it's almost this sort of Judeo-Christian view of time being this arrow that only goes in one direction, whilst hydrogen goes through cycles. So it's maybe much more like an ancient religion of, you know, of going in these cycles. What I'm saying is, We've seen this before, right? Every 20 years, the 1980s, the 2000s, and now the 2020s, we see 
you know, hydrogen suddenly being invested with the the hopes of 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 millions of people and money go it flows and so on, and then you get that kind of maybe it is the sort of the Gartner um, souffle collapses, uh, and then you know there now there will be clean hydrogen in the economy, you know, as we decarbonize, right? So it's not all hype. But there is a lot of hype and we are in that it's it's more cyclical, but we're in a cycle right now. Right. So your argument is that we'll we'll use it, but probably in a more restricted, restricted sense than the 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 hypers uh, are are suggesting. Because, I mean, I've seen I, I've seen some uh, uh, think tanks, you know, say maybe 30 percent of global primary energy is going to be hydrogen by 2050, 2060, 2070, which you know, seems a little far, a little far fetched. Um, and, and only uh, last August, and you mentioned this in your uh, in your article, uh, you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada uh, hosted uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz out in Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, and, and they signed an agreement, transatlantic supply chain for hydrogen well before 2030, first deliveries in 2025, which seemed, I have to tell you, a little optimistic. So let me start with where you started that, um, you know, you've got a couple of questions bound up there. So will we use clean hydrogen? The answer is we better had, right? Because hydrogen is used in the economy today in use cases that are not going to go away fast. They might go away eventually. So, um, <clears throat> you know, you've got fertilizer made with the Harbor Bosch process. Um, so fixing nitrogen, which we absolutely need. If we don't fix hydrogen, uh, nitrogen somehow, then you know, 5 billion people can't survive on the planet. So right now we make hydrogen and we make it from mainly natural gas, some of it from coal. And um, the other thing we do is, of course, in refineries, in the, you know, Alberta's favorite sport or second favorite sport after hockey. Um, and so we're using uh, gray and black hydrogen around the world, probably gray in Alberta, but black in, in, uh, in China from coal, some of it. And that is generating 2.3% of global CO2 emissions. So we better have clean hydrogen to replace that. Otherwise, those 2.3% of emissions are going to you know, probably grow. They may fade out eventually. There are those who think there are better ways of doing those things. Um, so the, the issue is really, what will hydrogen be used for beyond that? And so when people say it'll be a third of primary energy, the right answer is probably not the existing sort of 2%-ish, but it is more like, uh, it's going to be more like 5%, let's say. You know, you could see a doubling of the existing hydrogen industry because there are some things that are very difficult to decarbonize without hydrogen. So there's some industrial processes, that the ones we already do, obviously, but then also steel, long-duration storage, some things that are really hard, maybe some aviation, those sorts of things. Now, give me your thought. Give me your thoughts, Michael, on, on the treat uh, on, on the meeting between Chancellor Schultz and uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau. Well, so this was um, fabulous theater because you know the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, goes over to Canada and signs a deal with Justin Trudeau, and it's a it's a hydrogen deal. It's built as hydrogen. It's a hydrogen supply chain, and it's going to start in twenty twenty five, and it's going to grow to so big in twenty thirty, uh, and of course. The problem is there is no way of transporting hydrogen from Canada to Germany um, by, well, there's no pipelines and it's not going to go by ship. 
So then, of course, the people who are all in favor of this, they say, oh, well, it's going to be ammonia, at which point it becomes not a hydrogen deal. It becomes an ammonia or a fertilizer deal. So now you've got the, the you've got the chancellor of Germany going over to Canada with huge hoopla signing a really modest sized fertilizer deal with Canada. And that's the way to see it. Okay, uh, fair enough. Well, let's talk about some of the issues on this because this is, I, I interviewed a hydrogen engineer uh, and he made some of these these points, but you've really taken it apart and you've got five or six objections. And let's talk about, first, first of all, physics of hydrogen don't work. Why don't they work? Tell us about gravimetric energy density. Right, so... When people say hydrogen is this fantastic fuel because it's so dense, they're talking about gravimetric, right? Gravimetric, gravity, weight. So hydrogen has a lot of energy per unit weight. So if you have a kilo of hydrogen, it's got three times as much energy as a kilo of diesel, let's say. So that's fabulous, right? The problem is that there's also volumetric density, how much energy how much energy you can have in a liter of hydrogen. And even liquid hydrogen carries, it's so non-dense, it's so voluminous that you get very little energy in each liter. And what that means is, for instance, to use the example of a ship, if you have these great big LNG carriers that sail the seas and economically, although quite expensively, bring LNG into Europe uh, and into Asia and so on, um, if you were filling them with hydrogen, if you could fill them with hydrogen, which is very difficult, by the way, for other reasons than density, which we might get onto, um, but even if you could fill them with hydrogen, they would carry something like a third of the energy each ship. So you've got a, a, an energy vector, these ships, which are already expensive, and now you're going to multiply it by at least three, simply because hydrogen is so voluminous. It's so, so voluminous. And... This is, this is. I'm not even sure if a lot of the boosters of hydrogen understand just how voluminous, just how bulky hydrogen is. I'm not sure they know that. I'm not sure they've thought it through at the very, very basic physics level. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, now, uh, temperature is an issue, and this is something I've, I, the the temperatures that we're talking about, LNG liquefies at 100 minus 162C. For hydrogen, it's a minus 253C. And that seems like, look, I grew up in Northern Canada. I've had, I've seen minus 50 winters. Okay. I know how cold that is. I can't even conceive of minus 253. That must be incredibly expensive uh, to a, make it that cold, and B, keep it that cold. Well, absolutely. And, of course, when you say, well, it's 163 or 161 and one uh, two, and then 250, it makes it sound like there's a ratio of kind of 150 to 250, that kind of order of magnitude. It's much worse than that, right? Because, actually, you've got to compare it to zero Kelvin. So hydrogen is liquid at 20 Kelvin, Right. You are literally approaching absolute zero. You're only 20 Kelvin away. Whereas with with LNG, it's, you know, 100 and whatever, whatever. So it, it, is, it is just astronomically harder to get to 20 Kelvin. But it doesn't even stop there because what you've also got is some weird physics of hydrogen, right? 
Now, most gases, when you compress them, they get warm, right? And you know that because when you pump up your bicycle tire, the pump gets warm. With hydrogen at certain temperatures, when you put it under pressure, it gets cold and instead of getting warm. So it, it's this dual Thompson coefficient, which reverses. It's very hard to manage. The other thing is you've got um, different isomers of hydrogen. You could liquefy hydrogen, insulate it perfectly, and leave it there, and it will boil off because the isomers are flipping and releasing energy as they do so. So it's just really complicated. Now, what it what that means is a few things. First of all, as you say, really expensive to liquefy. It uses a lot of energy. So if you took um, one unit of energy as hydrogen and you liquefied that hydrogen, so you take it as gas, you've now you've electrolyzed, you've made your hydrogen, but now you want to liquefy it, you're going to use somewhere between 30 and 45% of the energy liquefying it, right? And the other thing is, of course, it embrittles. So everything that touches it has to be made of really high quality and very, very you know specific materials. And it loves to boil off. The moment any heat gets in through your insulation, that hydrogen is turning to gas and you better let it go. NASA, which of course used hydrogen for the shuttle program, lost, allowed to boil off, emitted 46% of the hydrogen that it purchased during the shuttle program. And of course, hydrogen is a, is a greenhouse gas. Hydrogen has a warming potential over 100 years of 11 times CO2. So one, one kilo of hydrogen escaping is 11 times worse than a kilo of CO2. And over a 20-year period, because it's quite short-lived in the atmosphere, it's actually 33 times worse than CO2. So you've got these, it's just really, really hard to handle this stuff. It's expensive to liquefy. It's very voluminous to stick on ships. You're not going to be doing that. And then it loves to boil off and escape. And it's a fossil, it's a, a, a greenhouse gas. So these are things you can't wish away just because you want a, a magic solution to climate change. Do we have any um, liquid H uh, uh, hydrogen uh, carriers? Have we ever we, built one? You, you, we do. We do. And in fact, they even have trucks that carry liquid hydrogen on the roads in the US. Um, but uh, it's not something that you would want in large numbers in your neighborhood. Let's put it that way. A little explosive, is it? Well, it, it's explosive, but also you need a lot of them. So as an example, people say, oh, aviation, right? We're going to have hydrogen is the key to long uh, long haul flights. And for a while, I thought, no, 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 no way, because the, the aircraft, if you just look at how much jet fuel you put on a 747 or on a big airplane, and then you tried to replicate that in hydrogen, it would be basically the whole airplane would have to have a big bubble on top full of hydrogen liquid. It's not, not just because you could, it's not compressed enough. Uh, but actually, that's wrong because you'd redesign the plane and you could have a long haul plane. The problem is, how are you going to get the liquid hydrogen to a major airport? And the answer is, well, you can't have a pipeline of liquid hydrogen at 20 Kelvin. That's not a thing. So you're going to bring it in. Um, you can't bring it in by gas pipeline because liquefying it would require so much electricity at every airport in the world. You can forget that. That's not going to happen. 
And so then the suggestion is, well, why don't we bring it in by liquid hydrogen tanker trucks? And the calculation for Heathrow, done by the head of the Whittle Lab at Cambridge, is one hydrogen tanker truck per minute through the streets of West London. And and you sort of, when you when you think this through, it's system thinking, but you say, well, that it's just not going to happen. We're not going to have this. I mean, it's even worse, by the way, if it's... Um, if it's hydrogen gas tube trailers, people say, oh, well, we're going to do trucks with hydrogen. Well, how are you going to get the truck? How are you going to get the hydrogen to the truck stops? Oh, well, we'll have these tube trailers. You need 16 tube trailers to replace one diesel tanker because physics, hydrogen is so voluminous. And no mayor of any town is going to be happy with 16 times as many vehicles carrying this you know, a volatile substance through their streets. And of course, the cost, 16 times, obviously, at least, the cost of delivering diesel. So the thing just unravels when you poke on it. I want to ask you about a technology that uh, is uh, being developed by a company in Alberta. Uh, it's called uh, Innova Hydrogen. And it is a form of methane pyrolysis. So basically, they use a catalyst and electricity, and they knock the carbon molecule off the uh, off the hydrogen. Uh, oh, sorry, off the uh, methane uh, uh, molecule. Uh, knock the carbon atom off the the methane molecule, and they think that they're going to be able to do it economically. But more importantly, they can do it right where the use is. You know, if you if you've got a, an airport then you can have a methane pyrolysis machine uh, equipment right there and make it on site. Does that change any of these calculations? So first of all, you know, the, you, we'll unwrap that. So that is a form of blue hydrogen, it's called, right? Because right. it's hydrogen comes from fossil fuel with the carbon removed, captured and, you know, presumably sequestered. And by the way, I'm fine with that, right? I'm also fine with that innovation, if it can produce hydrogen cheaply, the supply side, because there will be uses for clean hydrogen, as I've said, up at the, you know, in the in the, the existing uses, you know, I have my hydrogen ladder that some people may have heard of, the uses up at the top. So innovations on the supply side, good. I'm happy with those. Does it change the economics of flying with hydrogen? No, because what you're going to get from that process is gaseous hydrogen. You've still got to liquefy it at the airport. And that means one third of its energy content is going to go liquefying it. And by the way, it's not just that you have to bring that in. Probably you'd bring that in and do that. That has to be electrical energy. So if you do it from the natural gas, you've got to then generate, I mean, in the case of Heathrow, it would be three gigawatts of electricity so be, you know, that you need to generate on site. The other thing you have to do is you have to reject the heat right? Remember, now you're bringing in all this energy to liquefy. You've got, you end up with very cold hydrogen, liquid, congratulations. Where are you going to put the heat? In the air? In the river? In the sea? Every single airport has to solve that. And we're talking gigawatts of, of heat to, uh, to reject. And finally, of course, you've also got fugitive emissions, right? You are now bringing the gas. You're still, you're still um, extracting the gas. You're still pressurizing it, putting it into a transmission network. You're probably having to process, remove some bits and pieces you don't want in there, stuff that Alberta is very good at. Uh, then you've got to get it to the airport and do this process. 
And if you lose a few percent of that methane or the hydrogen once you've made it, then of course you're not compatible with net zero anyway, right? Because that's those are those are very powerful greenhouse gases. So it's kind of like I love it, but it ain't going to solve the big problems. What about if the um, uh, other applications other than aviation? So I'm, I'm thinking here of uh, the, the, some of the applications that you at the top of your ladder, which I, is, if I remember correctly, um, you know, heavy industry is one. So if you had it beside a, a steel making, uh, <clears throat> you know, a, a mill, uh, would that work? Well, so you at the moment, the way we make steel is that we use coking coal. And the emissions, there's two, there's there's emissions from the coking coal. Um, some of it goes into the carbon in the carbon steel, but a lot of it is emitted. And we can replace that function with hydrogen. That's one of the ways of making clean steel. Um, and so that's missing. And it's fairly high up on my ladder because I think it's fairly likely to have a role. Um, but there are other ways of making clean steel, right? There is direct electrical reduction. There's a couple of companies that are um, Fortescue Future Industries in Australia, Boston um, Boston Metals, in um, which is funded by Bill Gates. Uh, but you can also use biochar. So you could have a bio coking coal. And some of the very interesting, some of the uh, fuels processes produce biochar as a byproduct, which means we could use that in steel. Or of course, you can do carbon capture or you can buy offsets. So it's promising, but I can't guarantee you that hydrogen would even be used in the steel sector. Oh, fair enough. Um, now, let's get back to the shipping of uh, of hydrogen, because we talked about uh, liquefaction, uh, but we didn't talk about regasification, and that has it comes with its own problems. Yeah, I'm not I'm not as familiar with problems around regasification, other than that you have to again, you have to apply heat and you have to put that gas into the network. And of course, then the network has to be hydrogen ready. What about then some of the um well let me talk about let me mention, because this comes from your article. So the bottom line here, uh LNG is two times the cost of gas delivered by pipeline. But shipping liquid hydrogen costs four to six times more than LNG. That's extraordinarily expensive. Um, so if importing hydrogen in liquid form is out, what about importing it as a gas? You think the prospects are better there, and there are all sorts of e-methane, uh, e-methanol. Uh, anyway, An could you, could you yeah, could you tell us about those? Yeah. That's right. So um, so if you look at liquid hydrogen, that's right. I estimate that the shipping of it, because you'd need three ships for the same amount of energy and they are more high spec because the 20 Kelvin problem, instead of the uh, minus 261 degrees, you've got two, uh, 161, you've got to go to 253. Um, so they're more complex ships. So I'm just estimating that shipping it would cost something like, you know, I, I call it, you know, four to six, let's say could be 10, by the way, it could be much more. So it's not going to be liquid hydrogen. Gaseous hydrogen, yes, absolutely, but only by pipeline, right? So we there are hydrogen pipelines, they exist, it's a thing, uh, and that's doable. But of course, then you're limited to where you can build a hydrogen pipeline, which is going to be broadly where you've got gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines. 
So then the, the people who say, oh, but we're going to be making the hydrogen in Namibia and Chile and Australia, and we're going to be bringing it into Europe and maybe from Canada to Europe, it's going to be ammonia. The problem with ammonia as a, as a fuel, as a, if the homework question is, we're going to have these deeply, deeply electrified economies, much more electrified than today with electric heating, electric transport, and everything we do today. Um, if you want to fuel those by importing ammonia, then you have to deal with the end-to-end -end efficiency, number one, and number two, capital cost, and by the way, number three, maintenance cost of that chain. So you are going to be um, producing your clean hydrogen, right? Uh, you're going to be electrolyzing for hydrogen. Then you've got to turn it into ammonia, which is a very lossy process, the Harbour-Bosch process, same as we use for fertilizer. Compress it, liquefy it, put it on a ship, gasify it, and then you've got to get it to your um, your, your power stations. Um, you can either do that as ammonia, but then you're probably going to need different pipes because it's very corrosive, or you can crack the hydrogen back out, and then you're going to generate electricity. End to end, you're going to have 80%, 78%, something like that, losses. And that just means a priori, your electricity at the destination is going to be five times as expensive as your electricity at the source. It can't be otherwise. Then you add on capital cost and maintenance cost. It's going to be worse than that. So if you're Japan and you're talking about powering an advanced, industrialized, highly electrical uh, economy with power that is at least five times higher than your strategic competitors who have access to cheap renewables and don't have to do ammonia. It just doesn't compute. Methanol, you've also got lots and lots of costs to make methanol. I mean, if you make methanol, if you, we will need clean methanol, right? Make no mistake, because we now need methanol, which is not clean. We're using it. So will we replace that? Yes. But will you go from clean electricity blah, 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 methanol, blah, 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 clean electricity again. No, because the losses and the costs would be so extraordinary. People talking about e-fuels for transportation. Oh, you know, it's so nice. They're dropping. I'll keep the same car. So you won't because an e-fuel will cost five or even 10 times as much as your current fuel. And by the way, by the time anybody's built it, which they would be foolish to do, you are going to have scrapped that car and bought an electric car probably twice over. I'll, I'll mention that to Jonathan Wilkinson, who's Canada's natural resources minister, because he has a he has a a hydrogen car, and for some reason is is sticking with it. Uh, oh, I was thinking when I say e fuels, I'm I was meant I was meaning um, you know a, a a fuel like an ethanol or a or a a fuel gotcha. which is. Not hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen cars we can talk about as well. There's just you know, but, but but that's another that's another thing we're not going to do, or in in any meaningful volume at all. Now, um, I Edmonton and Alberta is, which is the capital city of Alberta, is developing a hydrogen hub, and they're quite advanced in it. Uh, Air Products, uh, the company, is is going to be spending one point six billion dollars to produce green hydrogen. They, the city of Edmonton is testing out hydrogen buses. Uh, there is a pilot project to uh, test uh, hydrogen semi trucks, uh, and and so, and I also talked to one of the utilities, uh, one of the big utilities in Alberta, about this. And your name keeps popping up. 
and and they and it goes on something along these lines. Well, I really like that Michael Liebert guy. I have a lot of respect for him. But uh, his observations don't always apply to Alberta, where it gets to be you know minus twenty or even down to minus fifty sometimes. You know, if you have a really 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 cold winter, and and he's and so I Eddie Robar, who is the city of Edmonton's transit manager, did an interview with him, and he said, "Look, we've got sixty electric buses. We love them." At minus 20, they don't work all that well with the batteries that they they currently have. And hydrogen gives us an opportunity to, to treat our, our, our hydrogen buses can act pretty much like our diesel buses. We're not going to lose range. And so now they're testing them. They're not buying an entire, you know, replacing 960 buses with hydrogen overnight. They're testing two. And they want to see if they, they work. And the Alberta motor transport carriers are... Are, are testing two semi trucks, and I'm okay with that. I I think that's exactly what we should be doing: is going out and and testing these technologies. You know, we've got in, over in Vancouver, we've got Ballard when it's fuel cell, you know, it's fairly advanced fuel cell technology, and testing, testing, testing to find out where there are use cases, where the top of your ladder is, because the top of your ladder in Great Britain, and this is the why I keep bringing up why your name comes up in the conversation is they'll say, what applies in Great Britain or what applies in the UK doesn't always apply in Canada, different climate, different, different issues. And do you think that's a reasonable way for governments and industry to approach this? So in some ways, yes. Okay. So I am also okay with experimentation and with testing for two reasons. One, Hey, you know, I can be wrong. It has happened. Right. <laughs> um, but the other reason is that if you want to persuade people um, that something doesn't work. You can produce, you know, on heating, for instance, we've got 37 reports. This researcher, Jan Rosenau, good friend of mine, has produced 30, not produced, he's reviewed 37 reports to say hydrogen heating is not going to be a thing, marginal at best. But the people who love hydrogen heating, particularly the ones who are vested in it, not just emotionally, but even economically, they don't care. You could produce 100 reports. But if you have a failed trial, it's much harder to argue against, right? So I, I, I'm okay with experimenting, spending smaller, small-ish amounts of money. Um, in terms of the ladder, does the ladder change because your conditions change? You know, kind of yes, but it's marginal, right? Um, so it may be that your competing technology is different. Maybe that in you know European city, that the obvious answer is going to be electric buses. But in in uh, Edmonton, the obvious answer, frankly, is probably a um, compressed biogas bus, a technology that's tried, tested, used. There is absolutely no mystery about it, and it would work. Because the problem with a hydrogen bus is that the bus is going to cost you twice as much, and the maintenance is going to be five times as high. And, you know, yeah, I guess if you say, well, what are the differences, um, temperature and also very potentially cheap hydrogen then you know you could sort of see why the the trial you know is sort of justified but i'll be pretty sure that if you were without emotion comparing hydrogen to compressed biogas or even frankly just a biofuel compared to electric and by the way the electric you know you you got to be a bit careful because edmonton although it it's very different from London. It's not that different from Norway. 
So why do these buses, why does Volvo, which is, by the way, you know, a Sweden-based company, why are they okay in Sweden but not in Edmonton? You know, so I'm not I'm not even conceding that they don't work in cold temperatures, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I will I will concede that the range will drop a lot, right? I, no question. But you know, batteries are getting cheaper. Uh, they're getting they're getting better. You know, once you've got a range, maybe maybe you need a bus with a range of three hundred miles in the summer to do hundred miles a day or one hundred and twenty miles a day in the winter. But that doesn't rule it out. Um, and I, I, but I would love to see the results of those trials as long as they are properly conducted, open-minded against all of those opportunities, against the, the biogas, the biofuels, and the electric. My, my take on this, Michael, is, is that the, the argument around electric transportation, even where it doesn't work as well now in, in the case of you know Edmonton's buses, is that the conversation in 2030 will be very different. Uh, energy density of batteries is rising yeah. an average of 7% a year. So, you know, uh, what does that mean in 2030? We got another 50% range uh, just on your average battery. And then what happens when we introduce, uh, you know, solid state and some of these other, you know, innovations that are coming along, like different anodes and materials and, and so on. So I, I think the conversation we're having around hydrogen use and use cases uh, versus electric use cases change changes as early as you know five years from now and certainly by the end of the decade that's absolutely right if you actually look 10 years ago we know that the battery costs came down by 80 or 90 percent over the last 10 years what people don't focus on is actually that the energy density improved as well by also something like 80 percent. so your nissan leaf that used to have a range the first model had a range of 60 miles, 70 miles, now has a 220 mile range, same battery space. And the other thing is that the cycles, the degradation, which used to be two, 4% a year is now 2% a year. So the degradation halved. So what I would say to anybody who's suggesting a hydrogen solution for pretty much anything is you need to be beating where batteries will be by the time you can get to some, you know, you say five years, but you know, it's a moving, it's a moving target. Right. And, um, you know, and, but here's the thing, you know, if you said to me, look, Michael, does that mean we're going to be driving from Toronto to Edmonton in a battery truck, you know, and I would say, no, probably not. You know what? That is an edge case, but, ed but you but the difficulty is, if you say, ah, there we go, I, we win hydrogen for trucks for the trip from, you know, Toronto to Edmonton. But, you know, what is that truck going to cost if the vast majority of the world is not driving, whatever that is, 3,000 miles at minus 40? And if the rest of the world is just, you know, poodling around in their, in their electric trucks, rapid charging them when they need, um, then how much, is, how much are the edge case users prepared to pay versus just saying, do you know what, we'll just use you know, compressed biogas, you know, it works. We, we've we got, you know, we, we've got a couple of corridors. We do this thing. We could do it tomorrow. It's zero, you know, we get the zero carbon and we're done. Why do the complicated thing when the simple thing works? Probably because I believe that's, called, that's what I'm thinking. That's I'm going to blame it yeah, on engineers. That's called Occam's razor, by the way, I think. Yes, yes. But yeah, we're familiar yeah, with that in Canada. No, and the engineer... <laughs> The engineers, you know, a lot of the discussion about this is, is of course, I, I have, you know, 
huge faith in engineers to solve problems. If you say you have to go from Toronto to Edmonton in a hydrogen bus or in a battery bus, they'll be like, okay, fine. You pay me, I'll do it. But that, yes. that that's not the point here. We need elegant solutions. Yes, agreed. So let me sum up our, our conversation, Michael. So the physics of hydrogen don't work for broad use cases. There, there's just, you know, shipping over a pipeline, shipping on uh, by ship uh, between countries, uh, there's all sorts of, of issues there that we've discussed uh, in in detail. So the question is, the uses that are at the top of your ladder uh, that we think there's going to be applications for, but they will be much smaller, maybe 5% of primary energy instead of 30%. And we agree that it's a good idea to begin testing in you know, the sort of edge cases, and I guess Edmonton and its buses in cold, a very cold climate is an edge case. It's not going to be the norm uh, around the world. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at. And and really what you're arguing for here is dial down the hopium, dial down the hype, and be more realistic. Test those uh, cases where we think we can uh, we can make it work continue to develop the technology, bring down the, the costs as, as we begin to manufacture in some kind of kind of scale. And, but don't expect that this is going to be a silver bullet, as is often the case. Have I sort of summarized our, our conversation? If I, if, we, if I might, I'll just gloss that a very small bit, because it's very important, I think, also for Alberta and for Edmonton, that what I'm saying is, when you say the broad use cases, the ones I'm skeptical about are the ones where it is hydrogen distributed into communities, bus garages, homes, um, you know, gas stations, people's, you know, heating, those sorts of things, shopping malls, right? The ones that I'm not skeptical about all end up being industrial. They're either, it's a, either a feedstock in chemicals, whether it's fertilizers or, or petrochemicals, or things like long duration storage, where you would store a lot of hydrogen, maybe in a salt cavern and use that when there's no wind and no sun, um, or things like steel and so on. Those are all industrial uses, and they all happen in hubs. So distributed, no. So production, yes. Distributed hydrogen uses, no. Hub use cases in industry, yes. And that's why the Edmonton hub is not a stupid idea at all. That's, that's absolutely right. That's spot on. It's then trying to get it out into the community, which is not going to work. And, you know, experiment, edge case, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, that stuff will go away. I think that's a very good way of describing the argument and, and very succinctly. And um, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for this. I really appreciate your insights. And um, I'm going to be doing a lot more interviews about hydrogen, uh, both in BC and Alberta, which are kind of leading the the Canadian charge uh, in this. And I, I will keep those uh, your cautions in mind. It's a great pleasure joining you today, Markham. Mm -hmm.